do you tend to view Christianity more like a team sport or an individual sport? Have you ever considered a question like that? For those of you that don't know, though I expect many of you know, the difference between individual sports and team sports is this. Individual sports are those that involve only one person, hence the individual title. Training, improvement, and victory depend solely on the individual's effort and skill. Examples of this would include things like track events and wrestling and rock climbing and golf and things like that. On the opposite end of the spectrum, you have team sports. You train and you compete, not surprisingly, as a team. Success depends more on the team's cooperation, on the strengths and weaknesses of the team, and on the strategy that's employed than simply on the individual performer and their skill. Examples of this are football and volleyball and soccer and different sports that you could probably think of. Now, we all probably naturally gravitate toward one type of activity or the other in our recreation, in our free time, assuming you enjoy sports at all, though the metaphor applies whether it's band or choir or any number of other things. But have you ever paused to consider how you approach your Christian walk in light of that? Do you approach your walk like an individual sport, where your walk with Christ is primarily a private affair? You may occasionally train with or train around other people, as long as they're helpful. But when they stop helping you succeed, you find others that won't hold you back and won't waste your time. Because ultimately, your improvement, your growth, and your ministry impact is dependent entirely upon your individuality. Or do you approach your Christian walk like a team sport, where your walk with Christ is primarily a team activity, a team, a church that both needs you and is needed by you, a group of people that you commit to whether things are going well or whether things are going poorly, because ultimately success and growth and impact in ministry is dependent upon all the parties giving effort and improving. Which of these better describes your approach to your Christian life and walk? In this morning's message, we get a sense for how Paul would encourage us to view our Christian walks. The Apostle Paul, quite possibly Christianity's most effective individual performer, the brilliant theologian, the founder of dozens of churches, the writer of 13 New Testament books, and the uncontested MVP of the New Testament, aside from Christ, naturally, he encourages teamwork. He wraps up his letter to the Corinthians by reminding them that Christianity is a team sport, both theologically and practically. And he gets infinitely practical here in chapter 16. Let's read verses 1 through 20 in our time together this morning and see if you can pick up on what I mean. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry the gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you and even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go." For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. 
When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning your brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia, and that they devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanas and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Let's pray. Father, we've sung your praises for what you've done in our lives, for the incredible reality of fellowship that we have with you through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Father, we declare boldly that he is worthy of all blessing and glory and honor. And as participants in that reality, as objects, the objects of your affection benefiting from the reality of the gospel, we have the opportunity to have fellowship with you and fellowship with one another. We pray that as we study your word together, it would be an encouragement to us, it would challenge us and rebuke us, correct us, exhort us, Lord, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, and Lord, that we would glorify Jesus this morning. For your glory and for our good, we pray in his name. Amen. Well, as you may have realized, we are coming to Paul's final words in 1 Corinthians. And much as you might find it surprising, even his salutation, even his closing words have some really important applications for us together. After 14 chapters of loving rebuke to this church of Corinth, and then one chapter celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ and ours, Paul closes the letter with three practical instructions. Three infinitely practical instructions that the Corinthians were to pursue and we're to pursue as well. First, we should pursue generous giving. We're going to see that in the first few verses. I know this is a touchy topic, but we're going to handle it gently. We should pursue generous giving. We should also pursue proactive partnerships, verses 5 through 12. We're going to touch on that as we walk through it. And lastly, we should pursue simple service, verses 13 through 20. Generous giving, proactive partnerships, and simple service. Paul starts off with their pocketbooks. Let's take a look at this. Generous giving in verses 1 through 4. He begins, Now concerning the collection for the saints. Now this will be a familiar term if you've been with us over the course of this study in 1 Corinthians. This now concerning language has come up already four times in our study of the book. Paul is addressing questions that the Corinthians had written to him about asking his feedback on. He says, this is a new topic, this is a new question, let me address this collection for the saints. Then he gives them some instruction on how to take up this collection, which begs the question, what collection are we talking about? When he says, the collection for the saints, what is he referring to? Now, we don't have time to go into all the different texts, but if you want to read them this afternoon, you can. In his second letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, in Acts chapter 24, and in Romans 15, that is 
written later than 1 Corinthians, he indicates that this is a collection for the believers for the church that is in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem was poor, and it's possibly thought for a couple of reasons. First of all, the conditions in Jerusalem at the time were not great, so everyone was kind of generally poor, but believers in Christ were even more so. They were ostracized from society, and they were losing their jobs, and they were losing their incomes, and as a result, they were particularly poor. And so Paul encourages other churches to help them out. He says he gave the same instruction to the churches of Galatia as well here in verse 1. So Paul is encouraging them to take up this collection, take up this offering to give to the believers in Jerusalem, to the church in Jerusalem. And in doing so, Paul gets infinitely practical. He gets infinitely practical. Paul isn't just some ethereal theologian out there. He's interested in the details of real life in the church. And giving these five practical principles, he lays out the way they are to take up this collection. And as I said before, I'm so glad that I'm preaching this text right now. We are, we are not in budgeting season. We are not asking for money. None of these things are coming right out. We're just coming to verse 1 of chapter 16, 1 Corinthians. But Paul lays out some practical principles here. Five realities of how we're supposed to model our giving. First, our giving is to be regular. Look at verse 2. He says, on the first day of every week... Paul says our giving ought to be a regular occurrence in our lives. It ought to be regular versus impulsive. It should be something that we take time to consider and we take time to pray about and we choose to regularly give, maybe with every paycheck or maybe with every time you come to church. It's up to you. It's not, he's not prescribing what the regularity is, though he's saying they probably took it up every week when they gathered together on the Lord's Day. But he says our giving ought to be regular which kind of runs a front of the way our culture functions today, doesn't it not? I don't know how many of you recall, it's been a few years since it aired on TV, but that there was this ad that came on TV and they were trying to raise support for humanitarian things related to saving cats and dogs and animals out of rough situations, right? You recall this, they show this collage of all these images of animals in rough situations and behind it is this Celine Dion song playing, you know what I'm talking about? In the arms of the angels, all, all that. Some of you are like, who's Celine Dion? I have no idea who you're talking about. Okay, I'm a child of the 90s, so you got to live with me on this, okay? And the whole point is to try and raise money to save these animals out of their dire straits. And what do they do? They pull on the heartstrings. They try to get your heart going a direction and convict you, and so you will give impulsively in the moment. As Christians, our giving ought not to be that way. Paul says we should give regularly. We should give intentionally. On a consistent basis. Now, I don't know how you get paid, so I don't know how often that is, but on a regular basis. Our giving is to be regular. Secondarily, our giving is to be universal. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. He says each of you. He says everyone versus some. Some of us have a tendency to think that the only people that are called to give in the church are those that have incredible means that are extremely wealthy. Paul says not everyone. We're not just those that are wealthy, not those that have the spiritual gift of giving. Each of you is to put something aside to store it up. Our giving is for everyone. It's not for some. Now, that doesn't mean that he's saying he doesn't prescribe the amount of the gift. What he's indicating is giving is an act of offering. It's an act of worship to God. And so when we withhold that because we don't think we make enough to have any impact, 
we're missing out on the opportunity to offer that sort of worship up to God. And so he says, it doesn't matter how much, we're going to talk about how much here in just a minute, but he says, each of you should aspire to give as a part of your worship to God. It's one of those things where as a church, one of the things that I am probably more encouraged by than the amount of money we take in over the course of a year and the amount of money that the people in our church give, I am far more encouraged when I see new people choosing to make a choice to give. When the number of people saying, I want to be obedient to Christ's commands, I want to give to the church, goes up, I'm far more encouraged than when the total number of amount of money goes up. Besides, as far as I know, even if our budget income were to go way up, I wouldn't get a bonus, for the record. That's not what it's about. It's an act of worship. It's an act of obedience to Christ. Besides, I don't know how much each of you give anyway. We're going to talk about the stewardship team here in just a moment, but wait to get to that. So our giving should be regular. It should be something we consistently do. It should be universal. It's for everyone. Thirdly, it's proportional. Did you pick up on that? On the first day, each of you, as he may prosper, as the Lord has blessed him, as the Lord has prospered him or her. Our giving ought to be generous, not stingy. As Americans, we have a tendency to think that there's this cooperation with God, that God has prescribed this rule where, when I become a believer, I am mandated, obligated to give God 10%, and I get to hold back 90% for me. No, the Bible says all of it is God's. All of it is God's. We steward his money and we can give generously as a result. We don't need to be stingy and tight-fisted with what God has given us. But it begs the question that many of you are probably asking, well, what about the tithe? What about the Old Testament tithe, that 10% that's become kind of a standard rule? Well, let me say a few things about the tithe. First of all, that 10% is probably not accurate of what the tithe actually was. The tithe was made up of three main pieces, the part that went to support the temple, the part that went to kind of raise the feast money for local communities, and the part that went to give to those that were in need. Most people, commentators, will assume that that percentage was about 23%. So if we want to talk about the tithe, let's start at 23% and let's go from there. Sound good? Thank you. <laughs> Dave's all over this thing. Okay? But secondarily... The tithe was a part of the Old Testament covenant. It was a part of the Old Testament law. Part of that money went to support the theocracy that they lived in and the government and the support of the temple. So in many ways, that's been fulfilled in Christ. That's not really a prescriptive law. It's maybe a principle you could apply, but that Old Testament law has gone away. But thirdly, even if those two things weren't true, we have to remember that the tithe was just a starting point anyway. We get multiple examples of the people of God being generous in the Old Testament where they go above and beyond to meet a need that's practical in their community, to build a temple or to rebuild a temple or all sorts of activities where they give generously because something needs to be done. So even if you ascribe to the tithe idea, that's really just a starting place anyway. The New Testament calls us to give generously. That's the principle. And so Paul here says, as he may prosper, to give in accordance with the way God has blessed you. The painful irony of the money conversation is that for most of us, the more we make, the less we give. It's trackable. They can, they can track this, that typically in the world, the more someone makes, the less a percentage of their income they give. And you would think, the more I make, the more disposable income I have, the more I could give. But exactly the opposite is true more often than not. And Paul here says, our giving should be as he may prosper. It should be proportional to our income. So our giving ought to be regular, it ought to be universal, it ought to be proportional. Fourthly, it ought to be proactive. 
proactive. Look at verse 2. He says, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. This idea of collecting or a collection is, is kind of the, it's the same word that we get, I think, thesaurus from, this sort of collection of words, and it's this bank, this collection of money that was prepared to be given to things. And he says, set it aside, collect it together as a church so that when I come, I don't need to go to every, people, every person's house and collect the money, it's ready. He's saying our giving should be proactive. It shouldn't just be waiting until something happens. It shouldn't just be waiting to react to something. It should be intentionally, regularly giving so that we are ready to meet needs when they arise. Our giving should be proactive. And then lastly, and this one might surprise you a little bit, our giving should be entrusted. Our giving should be entrusted. Look at verse 3 and 4 here. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, I will accompany them. That word there is really interesting. I will send those whom you accredit. The idea of you accrediting, you endorsing, you entrusting with this money. People that will be faithful with the use of the money that has been taken up and will take it to the believers in Jerusalem. Our giving is entrusted to others. We have a tendency to think that things like money are secondary to the really, really important things. Here Paul says, the use of your money is incredibly important. It needs to be entrusted to faithful people who will take care of it. Many a ministry's witness has been destroyed by improper use of money. Where someone has no authority over them, they have no duplication, and they take some money, and they start taking a little bit more money, and all of a sudden they've embezzled thousands of dollars from the church, and the witness of that church is destroyed says this is an important thing. It should be entrusted to faithful people who will take care of it. It's a critical thing for us to remember. This is also part of the reason that if you have a financial need, do not come to me. I cannot write checks on behalf of the church. And I'm thankful for that. Because we have people who handle that sort of thing, and we've got redundancy to make sure that everyone's above reproach. Our giving ought to be entrusted to faithful people. So our giving should be regular, it should be universal, it should be proportional to our income, proactive, and entrusted to others who will be faithful with it. The point I think Paul is trying to make here is that generous giving requires a team mentality. Giving money intentionally requires a team mentality because you have to say, I'm going to give finances to that person and trust them to handle them well. I'm going to give finances to that person and trust that they won't abuse it, that they won't misuse it, that they won't waste it. It requires a team mentality. And in addition to that, it's an indication of one's spiritual maturity. Now again, not the amount you get, but it's an indication of where your heart is at. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you do with your money, what you do with your time, what you do with your talents shows where your heart is really at. Again, this is not a plea for money. I'm not asking you for money. Just laying out what I think the Bible is teaching here. And I find myself asking the question, what would happen if most of us were to give or were to invest for our retirement the same way that we give to ministries? Think about the way you invest for retirement, right? You do it regularly. You take a part of every paycheck, you set it aside, and you invest for retirement. You do it proportionally. The, the more you make, the more you try to give so that you are prepared for that retirement. There's a universal aspect to it where we say, hey, if you're not saving up for retirement, you probably should be, especially with Social Security going where it is right now, right? You should be saving up for this. You have to be proactive about it. You can't wait until you're 65 and then decide I'm going to start saving up for retirement. It's not going to work. 
And then you probably sit down with someone who's a financial advisor and knows a lot about money, and you say, I'm going to turn these funds over to you. I'm going to trust that you're going to handle them well. We're very intentional about what we do to prepare for retirement. At least, we should be. Are we that intentional about the way we give? Do we treat our giving to the church and to the ministry of God the same way we treat our retirement investing? Or do we kind of do it as it inspires us? Do it in the moment with whatever's left over. I ask you, diagnose your giving. First of all, ask yourself the question, am I giving? Am I giving to the ministry? As an act of worship, as an act of obedience, am I giving to see the mission of the church go forward? And with extra, am I giving above and beyond to other ministries and other missionaries and other activities that God can take my funds and do incredible things with them? If you are giving, ask yourself, is it regular? It is a consist- or is it a consistent pattern of my life? It is a regular thing that I do. Is it proportional? So that as God blesses me, I go, how can I bless someone else because I've been blessed? Is it proactive? Is it something you think about and pray about? Is it something you consider and sit down to determine ahead of time what you're going to do with it so that you don't waste it? As a church, I think this entrusted one is really, really critical for us to keep in mind as well. This is part of the reason, by the way, that our church has what's, what we don't exercise what's called in, or designated giving. We don't allow people to write a check and decide what that check is going to go to, except in exceptional circumstances like replacing the roof. And part of that is because we believe that fundamentally what we see in places like this in Scripture is the church turning funds over to people who will be faithful, and they turn around and they make decisions. So our budget is overseen by the stewardship team who makes recommendation. Then it goes to the elders, and the elders say, this is how we're going to spend our money. And as a result, no one can coerce or manipulate the leadership of the church to get them to spend money on a certain thing by saying, I won't give unless you do. It allows us to have an above-reproach approach. And as a side note, I'm so thankful for the stewardship team. To have that team that digs into the weeds and holds us accountable for the way we spend money and budgets our funds and makes sure that that money goes to valuable things. I'm glad that I don't have to deal with that. I've taken just enough accounting classes to know that would not be a good thing. We've got an exceptional team that oversees this and helps us track everything we spend and helps us keep it all in line and helps you have security and knowledge that your money is going to effective use of the ministry and to further the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Paul's principle here is that we should pursue generous giving. We should pursue this generous giving. And from there, Paul indicates that the Corinthians should also expect three visits, three ministry partners that will be visiting them soon. Here he encourages proactive partnership in the ministry, verses 5 through 12. See, Paul isn't just some snake oil salesman. He's not just trying to get money out of these people. He genuinely cares for them. He displays that in this next section. He says, I'm going to come and visit you, actually. Let's read this. Verses 5 through 9, Paul lays out how he's going to be visiting them. He says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, or perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter. Here in this section, we see at least three values of Paul. As he says, what he's going to spend his time on, he writes to them, giving them the advance, what he wants to do when he comes and visits them. The first is he wants to spend time with them. He wants to spend time with these people. Look, verse 6, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter. Now, we know that Paul did that. He went and he spent the winter with them. Then verse 7, for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you 
if the Lord permits. Paul values the fellowship and relationship he has with his church. He's not just trying to get money out of them. But he lays out what I think is an important principle here for us, and that is that intimacy and care requires time. It's easy to think in our modern world with social media relationships that there will be an instant relationship and there will be an instant deep connection with other people. It takes time. It takes time to build relationships. It takes time to begin to care for people, to begin to minister to people. And Paul says, I want to spend time with you because I care about you and I want to minister to you. In addition to that, he says, though, he values their assistance in his ministry. Look at verse 6. He says, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. It lays out that fellowship also includes practical ministry, practical help and practical aid. In fact, of the 19 verses in the New Testament, the uses of the term koinonia, which means fellowship, the word we get fellowship from, at least three and possibly four refer directly to financial support. One of the manifestations of our fellowship, of our partnership together, is our financial support. And Paul says, I, I would love for you to help me on my journey. I would love for you to aid me in, in going to reach other people with the gospel. So Paul values spending time with them. He values their assistance in his ministry. And then lastly, and this one's really interesting, in 8 and 9, he values the mission over his comfort and desires. Look at verse 8 and 9. We read this. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Ephesus is where he's writing this letter from. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Paul says, I want to come and visit you, and I want to move on to the next place and be furthered in my journey by your participation in my ministry, but the mission demands my discomfort and my delayed fellowship. I have to lay down my desire for fellowship, my desire for comfort, in order to see the mission of Jesus Christ go forward. Did you see that? He says, I want to come and spend the time with you, but there's a wide door for effective ministry that's open to me. I need to prioritize that demand for ministry over my own comfort, even over my fellowship with you. My time overseeing adult ministry, one of the hardest things that I ever had to do was try to encourage small groups to break up the relationship and the fellowship they had together to go start new small groups. Because new people can't be engaged in small groups unless new leaders go out and start new groups. New churches cannot be formed unless people from existing churches go out and start new churches. But that involves a loss of relationship and a genuine pain and hurt and sadness. But it's always delayed fellowship. Because if we are brothers and sisters in Christ, then no believer you ever say goodbye to in this world, you will not have a reunion with one day in heaven. And so we can say, I'm delaying my fellowship with you. I'd love to stay with you, but I have to pursue the mission of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul says here. He says, I want to stay with you, but there's this wide door open for effective ministry. And though there are many adversaries, I have to continue to minister. I have to continue moving for you forward. Paul values ministry-minded, team-based fellowship, but ultimately he prioritizes the mission. So they don't get to do just what I want to do. I have to do what Christ has called me to do. But Paul isn't the only one hoping to visit this church. Did you see that? Down in verse 10 and 11, we see that Timothy is coming too. In verse 10 and 11, we read, When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now you can sense Paul's concerned tone here. 
He's referring to Timothy, a familiar character in the New Testament, Paul's protege who he's training up to be his replacement, excuse me, if you will. And the question we have to ask is, why is Paul so concerned about Timothy? Why does he encourage them to these things? And some people think it's because Timothy was naturally timid. He was naturally kind of passive or he was naturally anxious. And this seems to be supported kind of by 1 Timothy 4.12, where Paul writes to him and says, let no one despise you for your youth. Maybe he had a hard time expressing himself because he was so much younger than the others. People don't know, but I think more likely what Paul is anxious about here is he's fearing retaliation on Timothy because of the letter of 1 Corinthians. He's worried that Timothy, as his emissary, taking this letter to Corinth with 15 or 14 chapters of rebuke, people are going to shoot the messenger. They're going to take it out on Timothy as Paul's representative. And so I think he's saying that this is how you need to treat Timothy, because I know you're going to be tended to, to not treat him very well because of everything that I've written. So here he commands the church to three things. Third, three things. First, he commands them to encourage Timothy's ministry. He says, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, that you uplift him, that you encourage him, that you give him comfort, that you give him a place to stay and a place to eat and a place to have and support as he moves out and help him to teach and to preach and use him in your church. Encourage his ministry. Second, he encourages him to accept his agency. And this is interesting. For he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Paul's saying, as I send Timothy, accept his role. He is coming on behalf of me and he's coming on behalf of God to do a work of ministry in your church. Accept that. Don't make it be tyrannical to him. Don't make it be a difficult experience. Don't make it hard because that wouldn't help you at all. You know, it's not, it's not in my notes, but flip over in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. There's a fascinating text near the end of the Bible in the book of Hebrews, at the end of Hebrews, which we covered a few weeks ago. I think there's a practical example of this. Paul makes an interesting, or not, well, we don't know for sure that it was Paul. It may have been Paul writing the book of Hebrews, but regardless of who's writing the, the book of Hebrews, he makes this comment in Hebrews 13 verse 17. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And we go, okay, that's kind of rough. But he says this, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I think he's saying basically the same thing about Timothy. He's like, look, you've got this pastor, you've got this minister coming to your church, and he's going to share. Don't make it burdensome for him. <laughs> Don't make it a painful experience. Encourage him, particularly if he's a young man here, encourage him. Encourage his ministry, accept his agency on my behalf, and then lastly, aid his journey. Just like Paul, look at verse 11. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with his brothers. He says, and, and, and give him assistance, returning back to me again. Really practical, clear commands here for Timothy. And we must consider the same thing. We must seek to encourage, to accept and to support the faithful ministry of others. Where there is faithful gospel ministry taking place, churches should seek collaboration and cooperation with one another to see the mission of Jesus Christ go forward. Well, Paul hopes they'll have one final visitor here as well. Look at verse 12. He says, Now concerning your brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Do you remember Apollos? Apollos, the charismatic, dynamic preacher of the word that was in Corinth, one of the individuals that this Corinthian church was fighting over, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. Remember that whole discussion? He says, I want to send Apollos, I'm encouraging him to come and visit you as well, but for some reason, Apollos is hesitant. 
says it's not his will to come right now. And it's possible that he was fearful, that Apollos was like, there's these cliques forming, and if I come, this personality cold is just going to get worse, so I'm not going to visit right now. It's possible that he was just busy in other ministry efforts. We don't ultimately know, but we do know that he hopes that he will come when he has opportunity. When the moment is right, he will try and visit as well. And I expect Paul's encouragement for when Apollos comes will be just like Paul and Timothy. Encourage the brother. Bless his ministry. Help him to go forward with power in the gospel. The point of relaying, I think, all three of these, they could be, they're very practical things, but I also think there's a reason Paul lists them here at the end of his letter. There's a point he's trying to drive home for the Corinthians. He's hoping to get them outside of being so consumed with their own world and to look to the ministry of others as well. Paul is saying to them, proactive partnership requires a team mentality. It requires a team mentality. We must seek out, support, and encourage faithful ministry partnerships where they can be found. Where there is faithfulness to doctrine and the gospel, we should seek to pursue those sort of coordinating, collaborating efforts. We've got to dump, dump this white knight mentality. It's like we're the only church that's faithfully proclaiming the gospel. Not true. Not even close. Some of us think, if I'm not going to do this, then nobody will do this. We, I'm this white knight, this champion for truth. We're not. <laughs> it's not a solo sport, this Christian endeavor. It's a team sport. It's something we pursue together. And as an aside, that's actually a core value of Faith Bible Church, if you're interested. One of our core values at Faith Bible Church is called sacrificial body life. It means we give, we go, we do for the purpose of meeting needs in the body, in the community, and in the world. We sacrifice financially. We sacrifice of our time. We sacrifice of our people if we have to to send them to meet needs in our body, in our community, and in the world. That's a priority for Faith Bible Church. That's one of our core values, one of the things we aspire to as a church. So as an individual, I think it plays out very much the way it would as a church. We should seek to partner with other people in the church. Our small groups should partner with other small groups. Our church should partner with other churches. Our ministry should partner with other ministries to see the gospel go forward. We don't get jealous of other individuals. We don't get jealous of other small groups. We don't get jealous of other churches or other ministries because their impact seems to be more than ours. We say, praise the Lord that the gospel is going forward. And we don't withdraw financial support. We don't withdraw participation in a ministry. We don't withdraw our prayer support simply because we're upset with them. They may have been upset with Timothy because they didn't like what Paul had written to them. But Paul says, support him anyway. Now, let's get down to press tax. How do we apply this as a church? Well, some of you may be aware, but others won't be aware. One of our sister churches out in Bennett, Country Bible Church, is currently partnering up with Sower Church up on 27th and R. And they're planting a church in Hickman. So this fall, there's going to be a new church in Hickman faithfully proclaiming the gospel. It's going to launch in September or October. Dean Delfoss from Country Bible, their preaching pastor, is going to go over and partner up with Sam Larson, an individual from Sower, and they're going to plant a church in Hickman, Nebraska. And I would encourage you, in line with this idea, in keeping with what Paul is declaring here, to pray for them. Pray for their leadership, that God would raise up leaders to take that gospel message forward and to faithfully shepherd that church. Pray for their body, that they would engage in that community and they would be prepared 
They're trying to find a location for their church to meet. They're hoping they will meet in the auditorium down there, but pray that that would be enabled. And ultimately, pray that there would be gospel impact in that community, that there would be a faithful gospel presence when they plant that church in Hickman. Financially, this may mean at some point we have to pull things back in order to help enable that church. And we might come to you saying we can't do this thing because we need to give a gift to that church to help enable them. And then finally, and possibly the hardest thing of all probably, some of you need to pray about and consider going yourself. Partnering with this church that plants in Hickman. I assure you we don't want to lose you. It would be painful and it would hurt, but we need the mission to go forward and we need the gospel to be proclaimed in Hickman. So I would encourage you to pray about potentially attending that church. Pray about helping serve and help lead. They'll have any number of different needs and ministries that need to take place, especially if you live south of Lincoln already. Pray about considering going and partnering with that new ministry. This is where the rubber meets the road. We should pursue ministry partnerships as a church. And finally, Paul has one last call to this church. He has one last encouragement to them. Verses 13 through 20, he encourages simple service. Simple service. This is going to be fairly straightforward. In these sections, I think Paul lays out five unity-building postures that as servants we should seek to adopt. Five unity-building postures. First, he encourages watchful strength. Look at verse 13. He says, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. I think Paul has two things in mind with the way he lays this out, both doctrinal strength and ethical strength. He encourages them to stand firm in the faith. Everything that Dimitri preached on at the beginning of chapter 15, the truths of the gospel, this rock of our salvation, this bedrock for our lives, but that wasn't necessarily as big of a problem for the Corinthians as actually living out their faith and obedience to Christ. So he encourages as well ethical strength. He says, act like men, be strong, live in accordance with what you preach, do what you claim to believe. We're called to strong gospel faithfulness and strong gospel living. Both go hand in hand. So we are called to watchful strength. We're also called to comprehensive love. Look at verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. Wait, how much, Paul? All. Wait, how, 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 how extensive is that? All. Well, well, what about these people? All. Get the idea? Let all that you do be done in love. Now, this doesn't mean just soft-handedness. This includes both the affectionate love that limit liberty in chapter 8, and we see in 1 Corinthians 13, and also the corrective love that addresses sin in 1 Corinthians 5 and kick the man out of the church. It's both of these things. They're both loving, but we are called to radical, sacrificial love at all times in the church. Thirdly, this is where it starts to tweak us, we are called to submissive service, verse 15 and 16. Now I urge you, brothers... Now hold that thought, because what comes here, you'll see a line, it's like a parenthetical. You know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. So he says, contextually, I want you to know who I'm talking about. Now I urge you, brothers, then he picks up in 16, be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. Just two things in mind, submission to those in leadership and submission to each other, both a specific submission and a general submission. Those that help found and lead the church, and every worker, every laborer, we are called to, in ministry, in service, a posture of submission, a default of submission. Just going to let that one hang there for a while. 
Verse 17 and 18, a submissive service, a proactive appreciation. He says, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. I love this. These are likely the men who delivered the letter to Paul in Ephesus with the questions of the Corinthians. And he says, show them appreciation. Give them recognition for what they're doing. We are called to intentionally show appreciation for the service of others. How are you doing on that? How's that going? And finally, expressive hospitality, verse 19 and 20. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you, excuse me, hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. It says the churches in Asia and the church in Ephesus send you greetings. Oh, by the way, greet one another. Now, in case you feel like this is getting weird, this holy kiss idea, this is a contextual thing. We're not trying to start something new here, okay? Unless it means being hospitable. What they did, there would have been some sort of an act showing their affection and their care for one another, similar to a handshake or a hug, whatever the culturally appropriate manifestation would be. He says, greet one another. Care enough to greet each other. We are called to regular, loving hospitality in the church. That's part of what it means to be a church. Here's Paul's point. Simple service requires a team mentality. You're picking up on a theme here at all. We must cultivate a servant-hearted ministry posture as we serve in the church. Like I said before, I'm a child of the 90s, so I grew up in the 90s, and what you may know about the 90s is the 90s were the era of the bowls, right? The Chicago Bulls were on fire, and they were killing everybody every time they played them. And so everybody remembers all these epic moments of Michael Jordan hitting these shots to win the game. But one of, one of the more impactful things to me wasn't watching Michael Jordan in the 90s, it was watching Scottie Pippen. What most people don't realize is Scottie Pippen easily could have been one of the highest players in the entirety of the NBA, but he chose to stick on that team to play his role when he could have gotten two or three times the amount of money if he had just shifted to another team. But he said, I'm going to play my role, and they won national championship after national championship because he chose to play his role. That's precisely what Paul's talking about. Simple service requires a team mentality. It requires a team mentality. So assess yourself here, say, have I assumed a watchful strength? Am I pursuing biblical knowledge and strength of conviction in my life? If you're trying to pursue this comprehensive love, read back through chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians. Ask yourself, can I serve joyfully in a ministry that I'm not in charge of? And I don't know how things would go. And then I want to encourage you, this idea of proactive appreciation, I would challenge every single one of us here today, sometime today, sometime this week, send one note, send one text, send one email to somebody else in the church who has impacted you personally. Encourage a brother or sister in Christ. And don't let it be one of us that is public. Don't let it be one of us that's easy to thank because you see us all the time. Let it be somebody whose ministry is largely invisible. Show them appreciation this week. One of the things you may not know is that we have over 330 people formally engaged in service that make things spin and make the clock tick here at Faith Bible Church. Largely invisible ministries, people that are continuing to be faithful week in and week out and doing the work of the ministry. Encourage each other. Tell somebody thank you for what they've done this week. And then lastly, as, as just a side note, this idea of expressive hospitality, just going to throw this out there. Being a welcoming church does not depend entirely upon the fit team. They may be the front, the face of our church, 
But our church is only welcoming if all of us own this responsibility of being hospitable to visitors and to strangers. We should embrace these servant-hearted ministry attitudes. So what do you think? How does Paul view the Christian walk? As an individual sport or as a team sport? I know I've been, become known for my really pithy key points every week. Here it comes. Christianity is a team sport. Insightful, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Walking with Christ means giving generously, partnering proactively, and serving simply. Because you cannot do the ministry of the church alone. You cannot do it by yourself. We as a church cannot do it by ourselves. The question we have to ask ourselves is, will you continue to treat Christianity like an individual sport, or will you embrace it as the team activity that it is? Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the fact that you not only call us as individuals into relationship with you, but you call us to participate in a people, a people that we can share both the realities of our lives with and our financial means to care for and take care of others, a people that you've called a united mission to go forward to preach the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation in the world. You've given us brothers and sisters who we can serve alongside and who we can encourage and who we can equip and who we can prepare for ministry. We pray that we would be faithful in that, that we would be just as practically faithful in the way we serve each other as we are doctrinally faithful in what we believe from your word. Make us into a people that approaches our Christian walk as a team, aligned under the doctrine of Jesus Christ, aligned behind the King of the church, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.